You're listening to 101.9 Hi FM, I'm Benji Shulman and this is the New Blue Review. Welcome to the program, good to be with you on this Monday morning for your current affairs and culture show on our station. And uh, it is the pre-Yom Kippur edition of uh, the New Blue Review, so uh, first of all, I would like to forgive everyone who hasn't listened to my show every single episode uh, this year, you are forgiven. Uh, but don't worry, you can make it up next week, and uh, you can also make it up by listening today, because we've got a great lineup for you. Uh, later on, we're going to be talking about Rock in the Red Zone, which is a film that's going to be playing a uh, sort of independent Israeli film coming up in October, very interesting, we're going to be talking about that, uh, a little bit of uh, pre-Yom Kippur stuff as well, but I'm excited to say that the first up uh, in our uh, on our guest lineup today is Stephen Gruz. Now, Stephen is from the South African Institute of International Affairs, and uh, they are a very big think tank based at WITS, uh, and they as the name suggests, does a lot of international relations. And the reason that we've got him on is that since 2016-odd, there's been a big uptick in the number of engagements between Africa and Israel. Uh, And this has uh, led to a a number of... uh, Tin pot uh, commentators talking about the issue and some uh, minor, uh, inge- you know, thinking around it, uh, which has not always been very good, I'm afraid to say, uh, particularly when it's been partisan in the press and that sort of thing. And that's why I was excited to see that uh, some serious academic work is starting to be done again uh, on the Africa-Israel relationship because Steve uh, and uh, Larry Benjamin, who's a lecturer in international relations at WITS and uh, a couple other researchers, have put together uh, a paper for Sire and one for Israel. Uh, uh, for a journal there about what is going on with the relationship. And uh, so I thought we'd get him in uh, and chat him about it. Uh, Steve, welcome to the show. Welcome to the new Blue Ribbon High FM. Thanks, Benji. Good morning. Now, uh, just by the way, if you want to ask Steve anything, uh, he also knows a lot about Africa. He just spent a whole a bunch of time in Namibia and uh, all sorts of other parts of the continent. So if there's any other questions you want to ask or questions on this uh, related topic, please, you can WhatsApp us on 0618951019. You can SMS us and 34519, email us on com or tweet us at uh, I'm sure I'd be very happy to take uh, any questions. Steve, for a start, uh, you know, I gave a bit of a background on SIA, but what kind of stuff do you, do you guys do? So we're an international relations think tank. We are an independent of government, um, and we do a lot of work, uh, particularly on Africa, looking at its international relations. Uh, I do work on foreign policy of South Africa and of other African countries. We also have a unit down in Cape Town that looks at stuff that you're very interested in, environmentalism, uh, the blue economy, oceans governance, uh, sustainable livelihoods, trade in wildlife, uh, ivory and so forth. Uh, We have an economic diplomacy program that looks at trade and investment um, and and that sort of stuff. And I do a lot of work on governance (laughs) and development in Africa. Okay, so it's a a wide-ranging set of uh, topics. What what did you what got you into uh, looking at the Israel Africa relationship? So we you know we were seeing how many powers were beginning to engage or continuing to ga- engage in Africa on a large scale. So China, for example, the the Forum for China Africa Cooperation Summit has just happened last week. FOCAC, FOCAC, where uh, China and fifty about fifty heads of state get together and big deals are announced. Russia has long been involved in Africa. So has Europe. Uh, but we're seeing new players like Turkey, for example, like Iran, and 
Little Israel, too, has been making inroads into the continent recently after a, a rocky relationship over the over the decades. Uh, it's certainly starting to engage. We noticed that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, for example, was visiting the continent. He visited three times in an 18-month period. And so we wanted to understand what this was all about. I think go back because a lot of people – particularly obviously in our country, know the relationship perhaps through the South African lens, which mm. is a very particular mm. engagement, very different from the rest of the continent. So if you could maybe give us a bit of a background, what were the previous engagements between Africa and Israel? So uh, going back to ancient times, Africa borders on Israel. Egypt is uh, is a border country to the land of Israel, and we know uh, from the Pesach story that uh, there was a lot of involvement, and in fact, many Jews lived in Africa, in in uh, in, uh, in Egypt. But in more contemporary times, um, you know, in the days of early Zionism, uh, Israel was was mentioned by Herzl. Sorry, Africa was mentioned by Theodore Herzl um, as as a place that needed emancipation in the same way as he believed the Jews needed emancipation. Fast forwarding a few years, somebody like Golda Meir, when she was foreign minister and then later prime minister, was very very uh, engaged in Africa. There was a, there's an Israeli development uh, unit or organ, organization called Mashav that has been training African students, uh, sending Israeli students to to Africa and, and the other. Way around. Uh, there were many development workers in the 50s and 60s that were sent by Israel to help in agriculture, in water, uh, in, in, uh, in development. And uh, the relationship was actually quite good. The, both sides saw themselves as throwing off the yoke of colonialism uh, because the, uh, Israel had recently de- declared independence from uh, the British mandate. And, of course, Africa was decolonizing. So there was, a, there was a confluence of interest, particularly in the late 50s and early 1960s. So that's uh, obviously a big engagement and uh, something, you know, that's a lot of students and all that kind of thing. Uh, so what happened? Why did mm. it uh, end? So things started to unravel uh, around the 1967 Six-Day War, but really came to a head seven li- years later in 1973 with both the uh, international oil crisis and the Yom Kippur War, which were not unconnected. And basically, Arab states had offered uh, Israel. Uh, sorry, Arab states had offered African states. Uh, the promise of oil, the promise of markets, and the promise of support. And they threw their lot in with them. It was also the fact that in 67, uh, part of the territories uh, captured by Israel in, in the Six-Day War included the Sinai Peninsula, which was a part of Africa. And uh, Egypt at that stage under NASA made a big noise that uh, Israel was occupying the continent and that uh, African brothers and sisters should not ho- tolerate this. And, and so there was that confluence of both Arab support, uh, the pan-Africanism and the pan-Arabism of somebody like, uh, like Nasser in Egypt, and uh, inducements for, for African states to turn their backs on Israel. So almost overnight, uh, in, in the early 70s after 73, Israel went from having uh, about 35 ambas- uh, embassies on the African continent to having just four. And those were small states like uh, Lesotho, Swaziland, and Malawi, and of course uh, South Africa with whom Israel uh, maintained relationships throughout this period. It was in fact the only country that South Africa had relationships with in the Middle East before 1994. Yeah, but it's, it's very, well, I mean, except for Iran, I would assume, if you, if you count. Well, not, not full diplomatic relationships, but of course, Iran was sending us oil, yeah. uh, s- selling us oil. Because, I mean, that, that's also quite interesting is, uh, you know, I think the narrative around South Africa and Israel 
uh, is very much the one that we know from about the, this period onwards, the 70s to 1994. That's when you saw the cooperation between the Israelis and the South Africans. And it's, it's, but it's quite interesting in that if you drew a graph of relations between the rest of the continent and Israel and South African Israel, they're almost inverted. Because uh, in that whole period in the 50s and the 60s, they were busy condemning uh, South Africa and the UN and they, uh, they, they, there was, you know, Certain things around the diplomatic ties that they did. Uh, it was quite interesting that, that you know that that's not what's remembered. What's remembered is the most recent period uh, in, in from what you're talking about mm. now. Yeah, absolutely, and I think uh, that inverse relationship is 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 uh, is quite an interesting way of putting it because. The fact is, even though diplomatic relations were severed with countries like Kenya or Ethiopia, there have been business ties that went uh, all the way through. And in fact, changes happened in, in the Israeli foreign ministry. There was a new sort of personnel. And they there was a lot of work being done by individual businessmen in Africa uh, without there actually being an embassy or, or formal economic ties at that point. Um, but yes, I think uh, you know South Africa and Israel drew closer together because both were internationally isolated. And they had military interests. They had nuclear interests that, uh, that uh, coincided. Yeah, it's very, very interesting. We're going to take a short break. We're talking to Stephen Gruz from the South African Institute of International Affairs. And also we're going to be talking, going back from the past into the future and talking about what our relations like at the moment. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. 101.9 Chai FM. Uh, I'm Benji Shulman. This is the New Blue Review. And if you want to ask any questions, 34519. Uh, Steve is a font of knowledge. You can uh, happily uh, engage with him. And WhatsApp us, 0618951019. Uh, that is your, your WhatsApp line for any questions. So, Steve, that's a little bit of the historical background uh, about what happened with this relationship uh, and uh, how it was created. I must say, I found it quite interesting reading some of the things that actually got built uh, in in those early days. Uh, before we move on, uh, the fact that a lot of the first military and policing units in Africa were being built by the Israelis, the first uh, merchant marines, even the parliament in Sierra Leone, I discovered, was an Israeli uh, contracted building. It's uh, stuff that still sticks around. Hmm. Absolutely. Some of that endures. Uh, but uh, things, as I say, from the 70s really took a low uh, diplomatic profile. Mm. So what then changed again? Because we've clearly seen a bit of a change. Uh, so what is the, uh, you know, the aspect that was then? So I think Africa know. started coming back onto the radar. Um, Obviously, I think uh, you know once once these doors were shut, uh, Israel focused its its energy on the U.S. on Europe. Uh, there was the peace treaty with Egypt in 1979, 78, 79. Uh, then the end of the Cold War. But just before the end of the Cold War, countries were starting to see that perhaps these promises that they'd got from the Arab states had not materialized, uh, and that there was some interest and some benefit to engaging with Israel. So you saw countries like Zaire, uh, now the DRC under. Mobutu, uh, starting to open relations, uh, Kenya and Ethiopia towards the late 80s. Then, of course, the Cold War ended in 1989 uh, to 91. And in that post-Cold War era, uh, many relations were restored. Now, Israel didn't open embassies in all of those countries. I think at the moment it's got about 11 or 12, as opposed to the 30 that they covered. But they have dif- diplomatic relations today with about 50 of the of the African, uh, 55 African states, including some in North Africa. Um, so so things 
the world changed, the international uh, environment changed, and until the very recent period, uh, which, which I talked about at the beginning, uh, there, there was, there, there was a, an active wooing of African states because there was something that both sides felt they could get out of it. Mm-hmm. So, so it kind of built, but then all of a sudden we've seen uh, a sea change in the Israeli attitude. I mean, I think that uh, you know a lot of them probably still remembered what happened in the fifties yeah. and sixties, and they were nervous. Uh, but there was building ties. But suddenly, I mean, Netanyahu's gone. To, is gone yellow fever, Africa fever, I don't so, know what you so, call it. So, yeah, there was some bitterness. I think there was some residual bitterness. Uh, you know, we invested, uh, we as Israel invested in these countries, we trained them, and they turned their backs on us in, in 73. I mean, I think part of it was prompted by the fact that uh, Israel wa- uh, has a hard time in international forums mm-hmm. and saw that, uh, recognized that African, the 55 African states uh, make up uh, almost a third or just over a quarter of of the member states in the UN. And if Israel could start picking those off and getting some support, getting yes votes or even abstentions on, on key things. So, for example, it's focused in recent times on the countries that are on the UN Security Council uh, the, in the rotating African seats. So, for example, like Ethiopia and Ivory Coast uh, in the last couple of years. Um, but it is also – uh, yeah, I think what partly prompted Netanyahu's first visit, which was to Kenya and three other African, uh, Uganda, um, Ethiopia, and uh, the fourth one will come to me, uh, Tanzania, Kenya. Uh, Kenya and Kenya, uh, two years ago, was the anniversary of the Entebbe raid in 1976, where, of course, we know his brother was killed uh, during that rescue operation. So I think it was built around that. But he used that opportunity to meet seven heads of state. The following year, he went to ECOWAS, the Economic Commission of West African State which was holding a summit in Liberia, and he met a lot there. And then he, he came to the uh, inauguration of President Uhuru Kenyatta at, towards the end of last year, although actually didn't attend the ceremony due to security uh, concerns. But he has used those opportunities. And it's not only one way because Israel has also made a big uh, um, effort to invite African leaders to Jerusalem as well. And uh, what's also interesting for me is the sort of pairing off or, or triangulating of the relationship between the African states uh, and and Israel and America. Yeah. I mean, we saw, for example, Kagame from Rwanda. He was the te- first African head of state ever to attend uh, APAC, for example, uh, a couple of years ago. And then the Rwandese getting quite uh, – because they were on the Security Council, as you said, uh, you know, doing things like abstaining from certain votes, voting. Uh, so the, that's, that relationship also seemed to be important as well. No, absolutely. And, I mean, there was going to be an Israel-Africa summit last year in Togo. I think it was uh, in one way, uh, Togo was uh, a very good place for Israel to try and hold that summit because I've just done, uh, been reading some work on the UN Human Rights Council and of, in, in 20, 2017 of the five anti-Israel Resolutions that were passed. The only country that voted against all five was Togo. Now, Togo, unfortunately, had. Are you talking uh, African countries? Uh, besides no. the U.S. Besides the U.S. U.S. and Togo. U.S. and Togo. Uh, so Togo is a firm friend of Israel, but it's had a lot of internal problems. Um, the 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 president has been under siege by his citizens. Uh, one family has ruled there for the last fifty years, and uh, it was uh, felt that for security reasons, but I think also because there was some effort to derail that summit, it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but I forgot your original question. The, the, the original question uh, was around getting the Americans involved ah, yes, on the continent the via in- Israel. 
Um, so, so uh, indeed, I mean, for example, uh, in, from the Obama era, there was a very important infrastructure program called Power Africa, mm. which uh, aimed to electrify the continent. In fact, Israel recently, even under the Trump administration, signed on to that program and wants to assist. Um, the summit that was going to be held in Togo, there was uh, uh, one of the, the selling points was that this will also put you in touch with American businessmen who are also going to attend this. Um, and, it, and, you know, it's, it's also been used as a, a bit of leverage for South Africa, where we know the relationship is, has soured, uh, particularly over the last couple of years, uh, saying, you know, don't perhaps push too far because uh, this may affect your relationship with, the, with America if you are, uh, continue on this extremely anti-Israel path that, that is being trodden at the moment. What's interesting for me also is, you know, there's sometimes a – um, uh, temptation perhaps to treat Africa as a continent uh, whereas on this issue uh, you, you definitely can look at things regionally there's definitely a different approach if you're going North Africa, West Africa, East Africa and Southern Africa uh, and what's interesting for me is the, the article that you've written uh, for SIA actually has taken kind of one from each uh, with the exception of maybe the North Africans uh, and, and looked at how regionally uh, Israel's perhaps done better in the East and okay in the West and the Southern Africans are more difficult. Absolutely. I mean, I would say Israel's three firmest friends in Africa at the moment are Rwanda, Uganda, and Kenya, all of which uh, – and, and Ethiopia, which all of which are on the eastern uh, side of the continent. It's more difficult in, in West Africa. Uh, the relationship with Nigeria is is uh, uh, a difficult one. It has its ups and downs. It uh, perhaps unsurprisingly tends to be slightly better when there is a Christian leader and slightly worse when there is a Muslim leader. And th- that's how the leadership in, in Nigeria has tended to rotate, uh, an unwritten rule. Um, but attending the ECOWAS summit, Netanyahu was the first uh, was the first Afri- uh, non-African leader to attend that summit, so it was quite significant. Uh, I also heard uh, over the weekend, in fact, that uh, former Foreign Minister Avigdor Lieberman uh, was very active on the phone, speaking to African leaders and, and offering them inducements. Uh, of course, at the moment, Israel doesn't have a foreign minister. That role has been played by Netanyahu himself, which may explain why he's uh, expanding. But, you know, I think there have only been limited successes from this program. For example, uh, when a poll was taken by the Mitvim Institute uh, in Israel of you know, should Israel prioritize African states? 3% said, yes, they should, as opposed to many saying that you should look at to the U.S., you look at moderate Arab states, and so on. And that uh, poll was repeated this year. So it was the second time that the question was asked, and it was only 3%. Also, if you look at votes at the U.N. Uh, on the um, – condemnation of the American move of the embassy to Jerusalem. In December, uh, some African states abstained. Uh, Togo was one of the few to support, uh, to vote no. But uh, there wasn't a huge block of African countries that supported the American or Israeli position on this. So slowly, slowly catch the monkey. <laughs> what's, uh, what's interesting for me is, is actually uh, back in the day, there were a number of uh, African states that had embassies in Jerusalem itself, uh, which I thought was was quite interesting. Mm. And you know, there's been a sort of back and forth. As now mm. the South Americans that seem to be mm. uh, schlepping uh, their embassies in. Uh, also, what I, I learned from your article in terms of it is that uh, in Nigeria had an interesting civil war in '67, mm. and and the sort of breakaway state. Uh, wasn't really supported by too many people. There were a couple of African states uh, and maybe one or two others. But the, for some reason, the Israelis decided to donate 
uh, all the weaponry that they captured from the Soviets in 67 mm. uh, to what they called Biafra, this, this uh, state. I'm, I'm wondering how does that affect uh, relations inside a place like Nigeria? Do so people think, remember that? I think they do. People have long memories. And, and in fact, the Biafran issue is, is, is rising again. And Israel still seems to be supporting that. Uh, whether that's true or not uh, is difficult to measure. But that also, I think, makes that relationship much more difficult than it otherwise would be. Mm. Now, what what would you say are the driving forces from the, the African side? Right, we know from the Israeli side. Uh, one thing we haven't actually spoken about is the AU seat, the mm-hmm. observer seat, uh, but the UN is a big one. Markets that sort of thing. But for African states, what's in it for them to now start? Uh, you know, from before that they didn't have. So it's well known that Israel is a leader in sectors like agriculture, making the desert bloom, in water, uh, in in high tech. Uh, in investment and so forth. And I think those uh, in terrorism, uh, combating terrorism in the security sector. So I think uh, for many regimes and, and many governments, those are attractive um, offerings from Israel. They also, uh, the p- potential of markets, of, of buying and selling. Uh, but I think uh, security cooperation is, is one of the major areas. And, you know, I think uh, Africa's a, a crowded dance floor. Uh, as I said, there's Turkey, there's Iran. And so there's a lot of deal-making, China, of course. There's a lot of deal-making that, that goes on. And uh, Israel, while it n- will never have the resources of a China or a Russia, can be quite targeted at regimes that are friendly to it and that uh, they can be seen that, that there's a win-win situation. Especially around things where they have, I suppose, technological expertise. Water obviously comes to mind as being one of the first. Mm. Uh, uh, and, and I'm sure that that's very important for those states. Very, very much so. Uh, the water technology, you know, those of us who've uh, worked on Kibbutzim will know what tough to fort are. Uh, little uh, drip irrigation circles that come out of pipes and save you probably 90% of the water than you would if you were spraying water on your field. I mean, those are, those are, are being implanted in Africa. So, yes, uh, it's a real pity, I think, that the summit didn't go ahead because a lot of those businesses would have been showcased. Um, but uh, African states are cautiously uh, approaching Israel. I mean, you mentioned uh, something that we didn't talk about. In the Before the African Union was formed, it was an organization called the Organization of African Unity, uh, which existed until 2002 when it switched to the AU. And in fact, Israel had observer status at the OAU. But when the politics changed and, uh, in 2002 and Gaddafi was still around, uh, he blocked Israel, the continuation of Israel having that observer status. Seat. And that's been also one of the stated aims of the Netanyahu government. Um, uh, and uh, if you listen to various speeches, the Ethiopians have mentioned it, the Kenyans have mentioned it. I'm not sure Israel has actually applied yet, um, and I'm not sure it would win a vote if, if it came to that because uh, support for the Palestinians, for example, remains strong. And I want to I actually ask you about that, uh, particularly from the South African perspective, right? Uh, because there, there is a sense that, particularly under the Zuma regime, South Africa's weight on the continent was not as high as it was previously or under Mandela. And, and the South Africans, as well as I would say maybe the Moroccans and the, even the Egyptians at some level, uh, have been the biggest block to Israel really getting a foothold more than it has on, on, on the continent. And I'm interested in, you know, where is South Africa sitting continentally and how seriously do you think its voice is taken on the continent on this issue? So I think uh, you're right. Uh, we, we kind of talk about the lost decade of the Zuma years where there was a lot of focus on BRICS, for example, and getting South Africa into the BRICS, but really benign neglect of, of 
of of uh, the rest of the continent. So, uh, but I, what we have seen in the last ten years is the anti-Israel rhetoric and action ratchet up in South Africa. Uh, there's no question about it. As I think the peace process has stalled and basically disintegrated. Uh, the Gaza wars, the war in Lebanon in 2006, all of these have contributed to South Africa taking very very strident anti uh, anti-Israel positions internationally. The rumours are, and it's very difficult to confirm that uh, both South Africa and Morocco tried to derail the summit uh, that was going to be held in Togo, and uh, we, we, we don't know whether that was uh, that was the case. Um, South Africa does, I think, uh, is a strong supporter of the Palestinian cause and has possibly been uh, trying to dissuade countries from being closer to Israel economically and politically. But they remain sovereign states and they're going to make their own decisions. Yeah, you know, that that is interesting. Eh? Uh, what South Africa does has, I think, an effect. Mm. And, uh, you know, uh, I think particularly what we've been seeing in terms of the downgrade issues and uh, all of those, uh, you know, can make a difference. But but at the end of the day, the Africans also, as you say, are quite capable of ignoring everyone where yeah, it has their South own Africa, South Africa is out of step uh, in Africa. I mean, even among the BRICS, for example, Israel's relationships with the other four, with Brazil, not so much Brazil, but even Brazil, Russia, India, China, have never been better. Uh, there are there's there's massive co- cooperation and collaboration. Yet those countries can still take this uh, a stand against uh, against Israel or, or for the Palestinians on an in international forum. But it doesn't get in the way of uh, of business, and, and that's actually true of South Africa. Mm. Um, even though there is this uh, diplomatic standoff and and a lot of tension, business is uh, is trickling along. It's not closing. We're not seeing a boycott. We're not seeing a massive uh, disinvestment as as some people would, would are, are campaigning for a very small fringe minority. Uh, relations, trade relations remain normal. Yeah, it, it's interesting to see that uh, uh, there's a couple of stats which which uh, stand out for me when when I saw uh, some of the stuff in your paper. It's not a huge amount of trade that happens, but yes. in the context of the regional discussion, is actually quite large. Uh, Israel is our largest trading partner in the Middle East, uh, and the well export trading partner, the one where we where we actually have a surplus, uh, and it's also the biggest tourist destination both ways. There's South Africans going to Israel all the time, and Israelis coming to South Africa. I can't remember the number. I think it was about ninety thousand, uh, uh, roughly uh, no nineteen thousand uh, people a year, and that's not insignificant. Um, so the trade is not insignificant, but. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, become sort of taken a backseat to to the politics and the standoff. I mean, you know, it's very difficult. The Israeli ambassador, the South African ambassador to Israel, is still in South Africa, having been withdrawn in May after the clashes uh, on the Gaza fence, and and that really makes uh, I think a lot of South African Jewish community very uncomfortable. Uh, it's not ideal that we don't have uh, an ambassador in, in Tel Aviv at the moment. And then again, we don't have an ambassador from Washington either, which, which may be a good no. thing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, yeah, it is uh, very, uh, very, very interesting. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break now. Uh, and when we come back, uh, we'll be talking about stuff other than uh, Israel and Africa. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. Uh, you're back uh, on the New Blue Review uh, this morning, and uh, we are talking about Israel and Africa. Uh, Steve, we are with Steve Cruz. Where, where can you find uh, your article if people so want to read it? If people look on our website, which is www.saiia.org.za, 
uh, or just search for Gruz, G-R-U-Z-D, Israel Africa. It'll come up uh, in the first few Google things. Uh, also, as Benji said, uh, I've done a new piece with Larry Benjamin on South Africa-Israel relations, which has gone into the latest uh, Israel Journal of International Affairs, uh, and that should also be where available online. I'm going to be very naughty here, Steve, and just mention that you helped me uh, with a piece on this topic for the South African Jewish Observer. So if... Uh if you want a slightly a more condensed version, you can try that <laughs> as yeah, well. I think, I think Benji found some really interesting historical stuff uh, way back from Herzl's days and even before. Uh, so I would also urge you to, to look at that if you're interested in the subject. Steve's quite a hectic review, I'm just going to say. Um, now, Steve, getting off of the, 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 the Israel-Africa topic for just a little bit, you've also taken on a bit of a teaching role uh, in, in, in recent times, uh, talking about Jewish-Muslim relations. Talk to us a little bit about that. What's so, yes, that? I, I was uh, approached by Melton, the Melton School of Adult Jewish Learning, uh, which is run by Ariella Milner here in Johannesburg, to offer a course called The Star and the Crescent, which looks at, through 10 lessons uh, of text-based learning, the very, very long relationship between Islam and Judaism that started in the 600s with the birth of Muhammad and has continued to today. To today, uh, Jews were often living under Muslim, Muslim rule in places places like southern Spain uh, and much of North Africa and the Middle East for hundreds and hundreds of years. And the relationship has had its ups and downs, but it was an absolutely fascinating course, uh, and we're hoping to run it again next year. Yeah, that, that uh, is interesting. Uh, Melton's run out of the, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Correct. Okay, so Correct. it's like an international course almost in, in a particular topic. Uh, and so, so what is the idea behind what you're trying to get across to people? Is it trying to get past a little bit of what we see in the media and that sort of thing? Yeah, very much so. You know, there's such ugly cartoons in the media. There is uh, a lot of Islamophobia. There's a lot of anti-Semitism. The philosophy of the course to, is, is to say, take the long view and have a look and find these times in our history. For example, in uh, in Muslim Spain, uh, in the Ottoman Empire in the early years, there were harmonious relationships. There were the communities lived side by side in peace. In fact, there was a lot of intermingling uh, in intellectual circles. Uh, some of the the greatest Jewish minds wrote in Arabic. Um, uh, for example, and there were times of cultural flourishing, uh, which are very different from today. And also, uh, what was quite interesting towards the end, we looked at Zionism as well and the effect of that on the on the relationship, but also how Jews and Muslims have lived as minorities in third countries. So in the U.S., in France, in Russia, and obviously also in South Africa, and what those relationships have been like. Have been like. So it was a very interesting and dynamic course. Yeah, it does sound uh, quite interesting because I suppose uh, up until a few years ago. Um, Few hundred odd, uh, you know the the there was never a good set of rulers for Jews, but on 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 the whole, you would rather have lived under a Muslim regime than a Christian one uh, or a communist one or, or whatever, for example. Yeah, particularly in the Middle Ages and 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 uh, the early Renaissance period, uh, it was life was definitely better under Muslim rulers than it was under Jewish rulers. I mean, people were still second class citizens, as we would call them today. They had to pay uh, an annual tax. They weren't allowed. There were all sorts of restrictions, which were sometimes more inf- uh, enforced. In, to a greater or lesser degree, uh, you couldn't ride on a horse unless you were riding side saddle. You couldn't build a shul higher than a mosque. Sometimes you had to wear distinctive yellow clothing. You weren't allowed to be armed when you were traveling. So there were a lot of restrictions. But those were often uh, honored in the breach, and, and uh, life uh, was 
definitely better in most places in most times under Muslim rule than it was under under Christian rule. Yeah, you know, so there's and it's interesting to see how that's kind of flipped uh, in in the last while, and hopefully the, you know the question of how do you reaccess that tradition and and bring it back uh, in some way so that uh, you know there can be that sort of engagement and consciousness yeah, and, and again. I wrote a piece for the Jewish Report a couple of weeks ago, and I entitled it "Don't Mention the War," <laughs> uh, and that's one way to get around it is to leave the Middle East question for a bit and try and find the areas in common because, you know, we pray similarly, we pray, we're monotheists, we have dietary restrictions, we have uh, dress. There's many, many commonalities. Arabic, if you're not concentrating, sounds sounds a little bit like Hebrew. It's a Semitic language after all, etc. And to try and find those commonalities, it's very difficult actually not to talk about the Middle East and not to talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But if you can put that aside, uh, some interesting things have happened, and I'll just perhaps end with an example. Uh, my friend Rabbi Greg Alexander in the progressive community in Cape Town has been doing a lot of work with the Open Mosque, mm-hmm. uh, which is an egalitarian mosque that has had a lot of flack from mainstream Muslims. But, for example, they have uh, the two communities have prayed in each other's houses of worship. Uh, uh, the the temple temple is uh, temple. Uh, the temple hosted a post-Ramadan meal, an iftar, and uh, the Jewish community went to the mosque for Hanukkah. So there are these bridges that are starting to be built, and I think there's much scope for more. Yeah, certainly is uh, very, very interesting. Uh, if uh, people are interested in that course, uh, when will you know if you're running it again? So um, we're pretty sure we're going to run it again. What they should do is contact Ariella Milner on meltonjhb.gmail.com. At, sorry, meltonjhb at gmail.com. You can also check out the Melton uh, website that, yeah. that has uh, a bunch there. Steve, thank you so much for coming into the studio, chatting to us about your work, and uh, I hope you continue to mine in this vein and find us some interesting stuff to talk about. Thanks so much, Benji. Great. Stephen Gruz there. He's from the South African Institute of International Affairs. We'll be back just after the break. Stay relevant and up to date. Keep informed. This is 101.9 High FM. It is indeed 101.9 High FM. I'm Benji Schulman, and this is the new Blue Review. Now, I was interested to see that uh, a new movie is being played uh, in the next while, and I would actually urge a lot of people to see it. Uh, it's being hosted by the Zionist Federation and uh, the Israeli Embassy, and it's called Rock in the Red Zone. It's actually quite an old movie, probably around uh, ooh, nearly maybe 10 years old, five years old, something like that. Um, but it's a movie that I actually only saw recently. It uh, hasn't come to this country yet. I still happen to see it in Israel. And it is a story very much worth telling because of what we've seen uh, on the Gaza border in the last while. And basically, it's a story. It's kind of three stories. Uh, it's a story about uh, a woman who comes from L.A. who is interested in music. And uh, she comes to the town of Sterot. Uh, and as you may know, the town of Sterot is on the Gaza border. And uh, it's kind of famous for two things. The first one we all know is that it gets shot at by rockets uh, from from the Gaza Strip. Uh, but what's less well known is it was actually the ba- background or, or the basis or the hub for original rock music in, in Israel. Uh, for a long time, Israeli rock music was just, you might say, a copy of whatever you were hearing in America or England, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, whatever, and that's what Israelis were playing. Uh, but places like Sterot were more Mizrahi, uh, they had other traditions, and so the bands that came out of Sterot uh, 
were were more what we would call the world music and the kind of music you hear on high FM today uh, actually came out of uh, steroid and uh, they they were the basis of it and so it's always been this home of a bit more grungy dingy uh, <laughs> rock kind of music and and she was actually coming to steroid to, to do a bit of a documentary on this and basically what the story goes is that she ends up in steroid has a look at what's going on there and decides that actually she wants to come and do a longer documentary. And while she's there, the war with uh, Gaza breaks out and, and the rest of the story really looks at the effects on this town of having these rockets being fired at them. And what's interesting for me is that, you know, you know, I was involved with community politics, I guess, uh, at uh, at that stage, and I remember even some of the people who were there bringing them out to South Africa, showing them uh, to, with them, showing them to the press here and the rockets, uh, and seeing how much of a, a huge issue it was that people were uh, firing rockets into a town. And we kind of forget those days because of the uh, magnificence of things like the Iron Dome that people don't have to run for their lives uh, as much anymore and uh, in fact some of the people in the movie have gone on to do other things because they simply don't have to worry about the rockets as much anymore and i think that's a, a really fascinating thing but the 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 movie pr- brings you right into the heart of what it meant to live in a town where every few minutes uh, the, the hamas would be firing rockets at at school children who who were driving in uh, Buses and and this kind of thing and and how quickly we can forget uh, about it and how Israeli society reacted and so I think it's an important film from that perspective an important film to you know to remember what is going on in uh, in Israel and in the world and I would really encourage you to go and see it because it's very powerful uh, it's uh, not a sort of typical. Uh, genre of film you know it's not a war film or it's not a music film or it's not a documentary uh, and there's some other elements which i won't give away because there are uh some some stuff that you're not going to expect and i would just say to people go out there and uh, book because it is a unique opportunity it's coming up on thursday the 25th of october at half past seven and it's at uh new metro hyde park and if you want to uh um, book you can book at uh, www.sazionfed.co.za or, or you can phone 011-645-2501 uh, 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 and uh, you'll be able to um, oh, excuse me 601 um, or, or just I'm not sure what the number 2500 and just ask to speak to the Zionist Fed uh, 645-2500 uh, and I'm sure you'll get right to the right person. The booking is 180 rand, and it includes a popcorn uh, and and a cold drink, and it is on a first serve, uh, first come basis. So I would definitely uh, encourage you to do that uh, and uh, go and have a look at this film. It's very powerful uh, and very much worth watching. Um, I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be back. And we're talking about sunsets before Yom Kippur. Choose high. Hi FM. 101.9 Hi FM. And uh, with the last few minutes of the show for today, uh, I just thought we would do something uh, sort of to get you thinking about Yom Kippur. It's uh, only a little bit of a day or so away in the meditative mood to think about the year that's been behind us. And I found a great way to do this was uh, a 
just an article on, on the web on Israel 21C that we often refer to on this program. And all it is, all it is, is 10 spectacular sunsets of, of, in, in Israel. That's all it is, 10 spectacular sunsets. Um, September is a big time for sunsets in Israel because, uh, you know, they're going from the summer into uh, the the more autumn winter time and so that changes and there's more dust in the air and there's more uh, uh, you know the the light starts to change a little bit and so you get much better sunsets and you actually get um, through the rest of the year particularly uh, as you get more dust particles coming from the deserts of Jordan uh, and and Saudi Arabia uh, that's according to one expert that they have uh, interviewed for the for the article uh, but it's more than just uh, an article uh, they've gone all over Israel and taken some fantastic shots including uh, in uh, the Ramon Keita in Jerusalem over the over the sea in the Mediterranean and in the deserts and it's just uh, some spectacular shots so if you want to uh, get in the mood uh, and uh, you love looking at great landscapes then I would definitely go and have a look at 10 spectacular photos of sunsets in Israel which you can find on Israel 21C and that brings us to the sunset of our show for today thank you so much for listening thank you to Mandy who does the production uh, on the show thank you uh, so much to Craig who pushes all the big red buttons and Vusi who helps us out with post-production and uh, thank you to you listeners who uh, join us uh, every single Monday on the new Blue Review wishing your family a Shana Tova and well over the fast and uh, we'll be back uh, in a couple of weeks because it's going to be Sukkot for a while uh, and uh, and Shminyat Seres, Semchas all of those lovely things and so after that we'll be back on the program bringing you uh, some great guests I'm actually already excited about some people we're bringing on uh, so I'm looking forward to it and we'll see you then <laughs>